Hi, I'm Steve Thomas. This is Cacophony. Let's dive into some great music. But first, a warning. This episode contains intense music of mystery, anguish, foreboding. And we're talking about a revolution. In this episode, we're in the great musical city where Mozart lived. But as far away from him, maybe, as it's possible to be. It's easy to look back on history and find things that appeared to foretell what was going to happen. Things that now appear to be prescient of some disaster or other. And yet, in the early years of the 20th century, there genuinely were plenty of artists looking with a sense of doom or foreboding at the world around them. There was a sense, particularly in places like Vienna, of excess papering over decay. Of the whole system being on the edge of collapse that things were unsustainable, that change was needed, that change was coming. Feel familiar? In music, it was the world of harmony, of tonality, that was to get a revolution. For hundreds of years, Western music had sat in this structure where, even if you don't know anything about how music works under the bonnet, that's under the hood for our American friends, you understand where you are. There's a common language we understand, where chords are related to each other. There's a key, a home, and where, if you travel too far from home, or too crazily, the music sounds discordant, unharmonious, a cacophony. Often, the game had been to take the listener on a journey to the edge of this world, like going to, or maybe daringly just beyond, the fence at the edge of the park, and then running home to safety and comfort. That oldest time storytelling device, in which we go on a journey, maybe return to the same place, but are transformed by the experience. That was music. That was how it worked. But nonetheless, composers had always been looking for new ways to say things. In the preceding 50 years or so, Richard Wagner had stretched the limits of acceptable harmonic language. Claude Debussy had explored the totally different sound worlds of Indonesian gamelan. And in the early 1900s, Richard Strauss wrote operas and Gustav Mahler wrote symphonies that challenged audiences as never before. Both of them using huge orchestras and stretching the laws of musical physics in volume, density, power. and raising the temperature in a way which meant that 100 years down the line, it's Strauss and Mahler who are the composers that fill concert halls. It was three Vienna-based composers, Arnold Schoenberg and his pupils Alban Berg and Anton Webern, who took the next and logical step. But it was a revolution. They began to write music that ignored the rules of harmony. Atonal music. Audiences didn't get it. Music critics didn't get it. Fellow composers, even the likes of Richard Strauss, didn't get it. But they wrote music of great depth and emotional impact, and took music well and truly out of the safety of the park, 
and far from home. And since that time, some composers have been trying to get back to the park and others have been roaming free in the wild. One of the things that marks out the music of Anton Webern is its concision. Everything is condensed, apart from the size of the orchestra. We're going to listen to his six pieces, actually called Six Pieces for Large Orchestra. And though they're written for a huge band, they're often very quiet, with only one or two players playing. They're also extremely short. Six pieces over in 13 minutes. The longest four, the shortest, well short of one minute. And yet, they're not miniatures, and certainly not throwaway trifles. Rather, it's that Webern had this skill in being able to say what he wants in almost no time at all. Freed from the constraints of having to go on the harmonic journey, he can get straight to whatever emotion he wants to share. And he creates whole worlds, and they're meticulously crafted, and they're pretty emotional. Across the piece, this music is strange, mysterious, lyrical, always intense. At times, the worlds he shows us are scary, perhaps terrifying. A lot of this piece is about colour. As I seem to say often on Cacophony, it's about the sound the music makes. It's about contrasts and timbres, and shifts, subtle and not so subtle, and extremes of volume between the deafening and the barely audible. And the pictures he paints can be bleak. The work was inspired by the death of Webern's mother, and you can feel his shock and pain. At its heart lies the long, in this context, fourth movement. It's a kind of funeral march, but you won't be hearing this at the next state funeral. It begins with deep, percussive rumbles and the sounds of gongs and bells. When trumpets and horns join in, they're muted, veiled, distant, Much of this is raw, full of pain and grief, and it reaches a shattering climax. But almost as shocking is the sudden silence that follows. The writer Alex Ross suggests that Webern's works hang in a limbo between the noise of life and the stillness of death, and that their key insight is the ease from which one melts into the other. Let's have a listen. Click on the links in the podcast notes to hear the piece and then get in touch and tell me what you think. People in the audience at the world premiere in London in 1913 hissed in response to this and audiences ever since have had strong reactions to it. I think now, over a hundred years on, our ears are much more accustomed to this kind of thing thanks to the revolution of Schoenberg, Berg and Weben. 
and we can hear the beauty and emotion in this music. But you tell me. This is visceral music, and it may produce a visceral response. Can you think of anyone you know who would love this or enjoy cacophony? Who are they? Please share cacophony with them. If you'd like to help keep us going, there's a link to my page at coffee.com where you can leave something in the tip jar or make a regular contribution. I'm very grateful for any support. Special thanks to Anna and family who sent me something this week. Please come back for more next time. Thanks for listening.